Warning, this episode contains some strong language. Listener discretion is advised. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bisniex. On today's show, I'm excited that we have Megan E. O'Keefe. Megan is the author of Velocity Weapon, among other things, and is... uh, also a Bay Area local, although during these plague times, we are not able to have a live in-studio recording. Megan, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Excited to be here. Absolutely. Separately, in our separate homes, I am excited to be here. <laughs> yes. Yes, it is, uh, it is quite good to have the ability to be safe in our homes and also the ability to communicate with the internet. It's... You know, I'm taking the day off from work today, but that doesn't mean I don't still have video meetings. Yeah, technology is awesome. Yep. So, Megan, you are going to be reading from Conduit of Stone, is that correct? That's correct, yep. And is there anything that you need us to know before we start? Uh, not necessarily. I'm actually reading the first chapter, so um, that should hopefully tell you what you need to know <laughs> if I've done Excellent. my job. I think you have. (laughs) All right, ready when you are. All right, cool. So uh, as you said, this is Conduit of Stone. Um, It is a science fiction that looks very much like epic fantasy on the page until later in the book. And it's, nice. it's a story that like I've been noodling with since about, I want to say 2014, like when I first started writing. Mm -hmm. And it's one of those, when I gave it to my agent, he was like, this is really cool. I have no idea how to sell this. Maybe put a pin in it. So <laughs> it, it is the favorite thing I have currently weighing down my trunk. <laughs> uh-huh. So here we All go. Right. Chapter one. Sunder stepped through a rent in the sky, straight into a death trap. The remnants of the portal stone that she destroyed to transport her to this mud slick hill in the ass end of the southern prefecture lay around her feet black shards winking as if they were in on some cosmic joke at her expense. She crushed one beneath her heel and looked around, hoping her second glance of the lay of the land might give her more hope. It didn't. Huddled on the damp hill behind her was what remained of the Cordate Company, once the finest fighting force in the Nairon Empire. By her count, half their number were now new recruits. The veterans clumped forward to present a more impressive picture. At the bottom of the hill, down the road they must travel, waited a more experienced force. Unfortunately, they weren't here to help. In fact, from the way they were waving their steel in the Cordate's general direction, she rather suspected they weren't here to play nice at all. Sunder sighed and caressed the grip of one of the blades strapped to either hip. At least she hadn't used up a portal stone for nothing. Mm-hmm. You look terrible, Kean said, drawing his round destrier alongside her. Sunder glanced sideways at him. He wore padded leather armor, the vital areas covered by thin steel plates. The leather itself had been formed in hot water baths around his body. Protective, non-restrictive, very expensive. She mm-hmm. wondered what use it would be when he inevitably lost weight on the march. I was in a rush. She straightened her skewed evergreen coat. A rush to my death, apparently. What are those boot scrapings you adhered to the Cordate Company? 
Kean's shoulders slumped as he glanced toward the haphazard lines of men clustered on the crest of the hill behind him. While he lamented the state of his troops, she drew a sliver of the current through her vapor conduit. A thin needle of stone speared near her heart, and Faye shifted the water droplets clinging to her clothes into steam. With the opening of that conduit came the flavor of its previous owner, a scholarly woman who had been an alcoholic. Sunder placed her palms over the pommels of her swords to keep from reaching for her flask. They're the best we could find along the road, Kean said. Bent Valley people, your people, come to think of it. My people are from Jaren outcropping, she thought, but no, that wasn't right. She shook her head, dropped her connection to the vapor conduit, and let what little remained of her original memories seep back in. There wasn't much. A half-remembered thatched roof, a drooping tree on which she had practiced her sword technique. Sharp spices mingling with crackling fat. They could be true memories. They could also be ideals dreamed up from the simple fact that she had been told of those things. Anyone I should know? she asked. He cleared his throat, and there was a rough catch to it that brought her head up and narrowed her eyes. Somehow he managed to look contrite on the back of that big, ridiculous horse of his. Somehow, she suspected what was coming. Family, as a matter of fact. You, did you know you had a brother? The word rattled around the empty halls of her mind, familiar in the sort of way that one knows what grass is, but doesn't spend much time mulling over the particular details of a blade. Did she know? It was possible, at one point. Before her death, the Empress Serana had sent a stipend to what remained of Sunder's family. There could have been a brother. Sure, she said. Liar. Doesn't matter? The look he gave her made her turn away, focus on the enemy troops scattered throughout the swamp below. She couldn't pin down why that look bothered her. Something about it was just so open and pitying. Doleful, perhaps. The scholar might have known the reason for it, but Sunder chose to remain primarily herself for the time being. It was her own mind which had been trained for warfare, after it had been burned out and reforged. What she saw gave her pause. More than the soldiers on the road, the entire swampland was peppered with emulsions, everyone ready to pluck holes in the ragtag ranks of the chordate. It was hard to get a good read on numbers in such terrain, but there were maybe half a thousand to the chordate's two hundred. Hard numbers, through land the company wasn't familiar with. With the terrain on her mind, she drew current through a vapor conduit, making the slippery muck beneath her feet firm as she shifted the water into steam. Hot clouds puffed up around her feet, warming her legs as the ground grew hard as clay beneath her. It wouldn't do to slip in front of the whole blasted company. <laughs> what were you planning on doing if I hadn't shown up? She asked, pacing out a small circle of hardened ground. Honestly? Parlay. She hissed through her teeth and regretted it, tasting nothing but old moss and wet dirt on the air. He squirmed in his saddle like a chastised boy, wriggling so much he made the fancy leather of his new armor creak. Whole lot of good that investment would do him if it were never put to the test. So you're willing to trade away the lies of those you can't see to save the ones you can. Those seeds and cutting you're, you're escorting are meant for more than one generation. I've got more than one generation counting on me here, now. Sunder's eyes flew wide. Daya? She wouldn't let me leave her behind at Green Fallow when you didn't show. 
Said the emulsions would just get between us on the road and we'd be cut off for seasons. You know what she's like, once she decides she wants to do a thing, there's no dissuading her. Sunder scanned the ranks, ignoring the front line as they straightened under her stare. There, in the center of the rabble, a golden smear of the priestess's robes glinted under the red eye of the sun. Riding in the safety of one of the wagons, at least. Sunder had half expected to see her old friend standing in the front ranks, with a sword in her hand and a shield strapped to her bulging belly. That's a damned stupid thing to do, she said. You go ahead and tell her that. I'll keep my head, thanks. And just why were you so late, anyway? And why are you wet? <laughs> Sunder shifted her weight, pretending to be absorbed in her study of the soldiers gathered under their command. She felt Keen's glare on her, sharp and unyielding, the glare of a bull ox with just a little too much intelligence behind the eyes. After a moment, he snorted and kept his voice low so the sergeants gathered near wouldn't overhear him. Emperor Terran kept you back, didn't he? Something like that. She glanced away, studying the gunk stuck to the toe of her boot. A lot of muck around to be stepping in lately. You were wet. The portal stones are kept in the temple, indoors. Marvelous deduction skills. Thunder, why were you wet? She kicked at the tiny shards of st shattered portal stone decorating the dun soil, silent. The phantom of the imperial leash tugged upon her will, even from this distance. She'd given her oath and bound her blood to Serana, but it was Serana's brother Terran who held the reins now. Terran who'd commanded her to stay another day at the Pale Palace while his spies insisted Kian was marching the Cordate into an emulsion trap. He didn't delay you. Kian dragged the words out. She could hear the rough edge of his disbelief. He ordered you not to come. And yet here I stand. That's treason. That's my choice. His gaze flicked to the rent in the sky and the veil bleed leaking out all around it. You can still go back. She spared a furtive glance for the vault of the sky. The ever-present current storm thrashed above, sparking a hail of aurora shades on the gray, nebular canopy of the world-encompassing veil. The storm intensified over the rent, as if it could sense the heavy use of current and craved release. But still the veil remained, holding the ravages of loose current back. For all it saved them from the current, the veil strangled the light of the sun, making crop growing an endless struggle. And it had been her destiny to, te to tear it all down, to scatter the veil and restore the stability of the currents, or so Empress Serana had claimed before her death. Sunder swallowed the weight of the sky a mantle upon her shoulders. She had already tried once and failed. She did not know how to try again. The iris blade was in her hand. She didn't recall drawing it. She pulled current through her solid conduit and passed her draw into the matching stone set in the hollow of the sword's grip, extending her reach. She hesitated, mm. loyalty to the blood oath conflicting with what she was about to do. But what was one more direct order disobeyed? At least after this, there would be no going back. After the shattering, the only loyal course of action would be to press north, to guide the Cordate Company home where they belonged. Gritting her teeth against the instinct to leap back through the rent, she slammed the iris blade into the slowly widening slit and released the current charge. For just a heartbeat, the mercurial streak held steady, solidifying in the misty air. Then it collapsed under its own weight, shattering like a mirror cast down. 
She sighed with relief and kicked at the tiny shards. The mental pressure to return broke with the rent, and now she felt only a desire to destroy the army gathered before her as she had the portal. The oath was a practical thing. With immediate return to Terran out of the question, the best thing she could do to serve would be to save the Chordate, and to do that, she must break the emulsion forced against her blades. So be it. I am the commander of a guardship named for a flower that hasn't bloomed in 300 years. Sunder tipped her head back to regard the thrashing of the current above her, whale tails of power breaking through the maelstrom to slap against the veil and send up brilliant scatters of color. Coruscating energies obscured the sun's pale rings. She looked away from the problem she could not solve, back to the soldiers she could serve. I cannot save this world, she said, but I can save them. That's the end of chapter one. Ooh. That was awesome. <laughs> Yay. I'm fond of it. <laughs> I'm a sucker for, I mean, I'm a sucker for a lot of things, but I'm a sucker for epic fantasy and I'm a sucker for science fiction and the idea of a uh, space opera that starts out feeling like an epic fantasy is, uh, you know, I want to buy that book. Awesome. <laughs> I'll put that in my query letter now. <laughs> Excellent. Guy on podcast said, please, please yeah. buy this. Buy this. It'll be great. I promise. <laughs> yeah. Um, the world building required for something to feel immediately like an epic fantasy and the world building required for a space opera feel very much to me like they are two sides of the same coin. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I get asked a lot on panels and things, you know, what, what's the difference between writing um, fantasy and science fiction? And the answer is generally just set dressing. <laughs> yeah. It's aesthetic, you know, this, the same amount of work is involved, the same amount of world building, all that. You gotta have your ducks in a row for both. Absolutely. Yeah, and I'm, I'm just thinking, like, you know, we we have a proud tradition of having like swords in space books already yeah you know i'm i'm thinking of like one of the things that like sunk its hooks really deeply into my mind when i was just you know a baby fan was the first knife fight scene in dune oh yeah it's great and like you know and and now we have the Machineries of Empire by Yoon Ha Lee that are just, you know, mm -hmm. lots and lots of swords in space. A swords make plus, sense in space. <laughs> yeah, plus awesome fucky math bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> she gets weird, and I love it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, it's awesome. So, um, something that you said right before the reading was, you were talking about how this is, you know, your favorite thing that's in your trunk and I wondered if you could talk a little bit about just sort of how your experience of trunking things that you absolutely love. Because, like, we have this whole spectrum of trunking from, you know, I love this thing to bits but cannot sell it, all the way to I wrote this thing and immediately realized it was a mistake. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, I, I confess my, my trunk is quite small at the moment. And 
part of that, I think, is just diehard optimism. Like, I'm mm-hmm. like, okay, this is just set aside for now. You know, I, I love it, and it needs to marinate a little, and I will come back to it when the market is right. Is yeah. how I tend to think about things. Because, I mean, an author's career is lifelong, right? Like, mm-hmm. it's, you don't stop because you can't. That's why you're an author in the first place. Yeah. <laughs> you don't do it for the glamour, right? <laughs> yeah. You do it because you're up I mean, at 3 the glamour is nice. Oh, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> okay, maybe you don't do it for the paycheck. <laughs> yeah, that seems... That seems accurate. Yeah. So I, I think, you know, over a long enough timeline, um, the things I love will also find their homes, even mm-hmm. if they don't fit right now. Yeah. That's something that sits very near to my heart, especially because there are, you know, my my trunk has things that are very new in it. My trunk has things that are very old in it. But then mm-hmm. I still have some things that are, oh, a good four or five years old now that I'm still, you know, still holding on to, still holding on to the hope that I'm going to sell them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And like, you know, I've, I've I've talked about this on the show before, like sometimes I trunk things because they just don't represent me anymore. And some things, Mm -hmm. you know, are, are stories that I can't let go of, even if I know that, pulling them out of the trunk or, you know, putting them back into active rotation means like, oh, I'm going to have to update this for Hillary the writer in 2020 as opposed to Hillary the writer in 2010. Oh, yeah. When I pulled up this first chapter, like, I hadn't looked at it in a couple years. I was like, oh, I need to tweak some of that verbiage. Yeah. <laughs> Even I was reading it, I was like, hmm, that's a, there's an echo there. I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you, you grow as a writer, and you change, and your tastes change and ad- adjust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was, I, I'm just thinking, like, I just did... An episode like um, the April episode of this show was me being the the guest, and uh, Sharon Shu was hosting that one. And oh, fun! I'm gonna have to look up that one. <laughs> yeah, I I really enjoyed it, and also like the story that I read has a a really good core. Mm-hmm. But when I actually was reading it out loud, I was like one. I never read this out loud, and that is obvious. And two, like, <laughs> Christ, is this thing problematic in some ways? Oh no! <laughs> yeah, like the the main character is just kind of a creep. Oh yeah. And I was like, oh, cool. I'm I'm so glad. <laughs> like That's I said, awesome. we grow and change. Yeah. And then we go back and edit. <laughs> yep. Yep. And, and and I know that those are the ideas that are present in that story still echo into the things I write now. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I've I've stolen ruthlessly from Conduit of Stone <laughs> over the years. <laughs> uh, are there any this isn't something I normally end up asking, but it just popped into my head. Are there any things that are like your trademarks that you just keep on going back to even if it's just, like, little... I know in my urban fantasy stuff that I was writing for a while, I was, like, absolutely, you know, you could pry from my cold, dead fingers Mm -hmm. uh, describing streetlights as uh, sodium glow. Oh, yeah. (laughs) 
<laughs> I, I, I like a salt light. Those are good. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, I mean, as far as, like, uh... Like actual like verbiage ticks. I definitely have rhythms that I know. Like I always, I, I write to a certain rhythm, and it's, it's difficult to explain. Um, mm-hmm. But like I, I know when my paragraph break is coming. Like before I've gotten to it, um, and I, I say this occasionally. Um, but I, I really love rocks. You know, mm. I just like rocks. Uh-huh. So they end up in a lot of my work. Um, the whole Scorch Continent trilogy was heavily geology based. And I had a couple nice. little nods to like Albedo and, and things like that in Velocity <laughs> Weapon, which actually got, you know, noticed by a real ge- geologist, which made me absurdly happy for such a small <laughs> thing. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh, yeah, so I'm always like, I have to go back and be like, okay, not everybody can be described in these terms. I have to change it up a little. Um, you know, sarcasm is usually a coping mechanism for most of my characters. Yeah. Yeah. I like nice people, um, in terrible circumstances. You, you won't find probably mm-hmm. like a true gray character or a- actual asshole, um, as a point of view in my books. So stuff That's like good. that. Yeah. Yeah. I also I, fuck I with can... memory and timelines a lot. <laughs> yeah. So. I, I can deal with like one or two actual asshole characters or like you know morally yeah. gray whatever but well, here's for the, weird the most thing. part like i love reading it right like i'm a huge fan of peter watts and i don't know if you've ever read like blindsight or starfish but like oh Star- yeah yeah starfish is just like a carousel of assholes like nobody's <laughs> good <laughs> but i yeah. just couldn't do it myself it's just not something i i enjoy Mm-hmm. yeah and that's that's something that, like, you have to learn about yourself. Um, oh, yeah. As, like, you know, when I when I started writing, I was, like, one, I was still a literal teenager when I started writing for, for the aim of getting published. Um, nice. <laughs> which, you know, has its, has its pluses and minuses. Like, I was, you know... Mm-hmm. When I was going, I was like, you can't stop me. And when I got a rejection, I was, you know, this is the end of the world. I will never, ever get published. (laughs) Um, Oh, feeling things for the first time. (laughs) uh (laughs) Uh-huh. And the second and third time. Hmm. And the fourth and fifth. Yep. It got got easier by the hundredth or so. (laughs) But, um, yeah, like, my, my writing style when I started out was very much like, I was knee-deep in mainlining the entire disc world for, like, the second or third time. And I was yes. like, well, <laughs> I'm going to put footnotes because footnotes are great and they're funny. So I'm going to put in funny footnotes. And, like, it was <laughs> it was, it was a bad look. Oh, no. <laughs> it, was t- it was a tough look for me. And, like... Yeah, that's how you find your voice, though. Like, you try out different voices, and then you find the parts that are, like, consistent between mm-hmm. one and the other. And be like, oh, that that's what I actually sound like. And then lean yeah. into that. Yeah, and it's... That's true even, I think, like, for the first three or four years. Hello, cat. Oh. <laughs> um, the little tail. <laughs> it's adorable. <laughs> Uh, listeners at home, my cat has jumped up into my lap and is currently trying to colonize me, uh, <laughs> and may have to be evicted at some point, uh, especially if she decides to bite everything. Oh, no. 
for the the first like probably three or four years I was writing uh, like yep there's the biting oh no <laughs> <laughs> bite the technology uh, for the the first three or four years I was writing I was only writing in first person point of view and like mm-hmm. you know I'd read first and third pretty regularly just because like you know Pratchett is I don't think I've ever read anything first person from Pratchett that I can think of yeah nothing I can recall so I, I was reading a ton of third person I was reading a ton of first person but I only was writing first person uh and sort of like I don't think I just I'd really figured it out as a uh, like figured out third person mm-hmm and then, I don't know, however many years in, I was like, I'm going to start writing third-person stuff. And, like, <laughs> there was the first time I did it, I was like, oh, is there going to be, like, are there going to be problems? Like, is my voice going to change? Is this going to be... And then I was like, no, it's, it's still recognizably me. Like, I'm not... Oh, yeah. Every writer, I think, has their own sort of internal rhythm that just comes out regardless of what you try to do. <laughs> yeah. And, like, even if you're making specific stylistic decisions, you're still going to have that. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I just wrote and sent uh, to my agent for review a novella that is, it's first person present, and it's sort of sci-fi apocalypse um, gene hacking stuff, but it's cool, absurdly Western in, like, a Cormac McCarthy <laughs> Blood Meridian kind of way. Mm-hmm. It is, like... Like, you can see, like, my Scorch Continent series has kind of that vibe, but the Scorch Continent stuff is always sort of winking at you, and this really isn't. Like, it's pretty brutal. Um, uh-huh. But it still sounded like me, which I thought was interesting as an exercise. Mm-hmm. I, I think I've mentioned this on the show before. One of my writing professors in college had an exercise that we would do we did like three or four times during the semester where we had to take a story that we read like everybody read the same story and then we had to write a new part of that story to insert in the middle of it somewhere great (laughs) um so like it was you know it was totally an exercise in voice in matching like trying to match the rhythms and the themes and just like Mm-hmm. get in on that and so like i don't remember the, the only one i remember doing i know i did three or four of these mm-hmm. over the course of that semester but the only one i remember doing was doing a plug of the things they carried oh nice yeah <laughs> and which is like not what i write at all like mm-hmm. not even a little bit but just being able i think especially because you know, that's a work that gets brought up in a lot of classes. Mm-hmm. Like, I, you know, this wasn't my first time through with it. And so I had, like, more of that, um, more of that rhythm ingrained in me just from being familiar with it. Yeah, deeper sense of, of the flow. Yeah. I think that that's a great exercise because we, you know, when you write a lot, you tend to, you fall into little ruts and get in your grooves and, you know, start tugging braids and smoothing skirts every other page. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so doing something like that kind of forces you to look at language in a different way 
I think mm-hmm. that's a great exercise. Yeah. And it's it's one of those things that I feel like I should do more and probably like especially when I'm feeling stuck that I should do more is just like pulling apart cuz you know we're like we're very active I I don't want to you know speak for everybody I myself am a very active reader despite mm-hmm. how much I hated the idea of active reading when I was like taking English classes in middle school or in in middle school and high school. Yeah, they're good at sucking the joy out of it. (laughs) Yeah, but it's like, you know, you're always like thinking about like, oh, I like that. How did they do that? Like read back a couple of paragraphs and go over it to figure out like how that particular turn of phrase worked or like, absolutely, you know, how a story twist works. Mm hmm. For sure. So on that, is there anything, are there, are there any of those that you've noticed you really have benefited from or that you've really like, you've noticed going back in your work has been, uh, has been beneficial, has been like. Oh yeah, sure. Um, I mean, so a lot of my rhythm I think comes from like an early sort of young adulthood of sort of mainlining P.G. Wodehouse. I don't know <laughs> if you've ever read those books. There's a lot of them. It's uh, For those who aren't familiar, it's the Jeeves and Wooster uh, stories for the most part. He has other works. Um, mm-hmm. But he is a, I, I get told that I write um, like I'm from the UK quite often. And in fact, my name gets confusing for people because they just assume I'm like Irish in Ireland. Uh-huh. <laughs> like, no, that's my grandparents. Um, yep. So I sort of, I picked up the, those rhythms. And, and you, when you take something that's so disparate from genre and apply it to genre, I think it really just sort of changes the way it flows. And that's where I get a lot of like my and sense of humor in the text and things like that, even when things are serious, you know, mm-hmm. there's still still a jokey nature here and there. So I say a lot of my characters use sarcasm as a coping mechanism. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, there is something extremely English about that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I, he's got to have like the biggest influence on like my actual like textual writing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, one of the things like, you know, it's it's great when you can sort of suck in the bits of that that work for you and, and make it your own. Um, mm-hmm. But I know like... For me, like I said, with the Pratchett footnotes, like it can be a there can be that danger of like, oh, I just read, you know, just like I just mainlined the machineries of empire. Now I'm going to just be writing like that. Yeah, <laughs> that's a trap you can fall into. But I think if you like sort of set out to intentionally develop your voice, um, that mm-hmm. gets that lessens substantially. Yeah. So going going back to what you were saying earlier about the like talking on panels and getting asked about the set dressing, are there specific things that you know work for you or know don't work for you when you're doing really any sort of set dressing? Like, you know, I I know that I am not going to do a good job of describing characters, especially in uh, <laughs> early drafts. Like, that's just not going to work for me set dressing wise, and I'm going to have to come back in and, like, 
figure out what people are even wearing afterwards. But, like, are there things that are uh, especially uh, important to you for setting tone, for setting uh, expectations genre-wise? Uh, well, so there's there's sort of two parts to this. Um, I am, like, as personally as a writer, I am what uh, my, my writing friend Tina Gower calls a putter inner instead of a taker outer. <laughs> uh, my drafts always fall about, I don't know, 10 to 15% short of what they should be. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am, and, and for better or worse, one of those people that are kind of assumes, well, I told you a thing once, you're going to remember it for the next 600 pages, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, which is not true. Um, that is not a reasonable expectation. So <laughs> uh-huh. I don't know what you're talking about. I remember everything right? that people tell me at the beginning of the book. Yes, over like the couple months you probably spend actually reading the book. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I usually have to go back in and, and put things in. And a lot of that is, is the set dressing. Um, and it what exactly I have to put in really depends on the type of book mm-hmm. that I'm writing. Uh, it's, it's incredibly book dependent because uh, so much of world building is informed by that set dressing. Actually, I have loosely what I call like the 3D, the unrendered 3D model of, of genre, <laughs> which mm-hmm. is a, a very silly way to describe sort of how I, I think of the genre boxes. It's basically, so for fantasy, you've got like a big toolbox and it's got all these things in it. It's got cool swords and it's got cool armor and cool castles <laughs> and all that kind of stuff. And mm-hmm. they're 3D models and they're not rendered yet, so they don't have texture, right? So like the sword mm-hmm. could be really shiny and new or it could be really crappy and rusty and old. And like what kind of story you're telling defines what kind of texture you put on it mm-hmm. and sort of shoves you into sh- subgenres too. Like things get a little grimdark or for talking space opera, you take the shiny chrome spaceship and... Suddenly you've got horror if you start putting, you know, bloodstains on the walls, you know, uh-huh. that kind of thing. So when Aesthetic. I'm, yeah, so when I'm writing, like, I try to think about, like, how, how does this object I'm using that everybody kind of expects in a science fiction or fantasy novel, how does it actually fit in this world and what does it mean? Mm. And those are the things that I tend to really tweak and refine a bit more in detail um, mm-hmm. on my edit passes. So, like, the first pass is, like, everything's gray and unrendered and then the, the next pass is like okay now we have detail and texture and all that kind of stuff mm-hmm. sort of where you pull your reader's eye to exactly yeah but like this is important like this re- or this reinforces what you sort of instinctually already know mm-hmm. i really like that you know i i think in large part i really like that because i one of the like storytelling mediums I have absorbed a lot of over the years and like have you know thoughts about what works and what doesn't work is Mm -hmm. like video games which are you know absolutely art fight me (laughs) no uh I will not fight you I will fight on your side because yeah I just got done playing the Final Fantasy 7 remake nice It is amazing. And and actually, in playing that, I realized, I'm like, wow, a lot of my early narrative instincts were kind of formed by the, uh, we'll just say, fuckery going on with what's actually going on beneath the surface in that game. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, for real. Yeah, but like, the, the idea of, I don't know, I've been 
playing a lot of Animal Crossing because it is the quarantine. Oh, of course. Yes. (laughs) I, too, have been playing Animal Crossing. Excellent. We should exchange friend codes after this. Yes. (laughs) And, like, just thinking about, you know, you have this framework of, like, here is an island. It's rendered in bright colors even when it is gray and rainy even when it is nighttime and you are being stalked by scorpions it is still (laughs) a like friendly location Mm -hmm. but if you just tore it down to the polygons and put different textures on it like that could be a horrific game yeah it's very it's the difference between like aesthetic and mood and actual structure Mm -hmm. which like i know that again talking about my early writing especially i you know, didn't always buy into the idea that you can't just use aesthetic and mood as a substitute for structure and plot. Yeah. (laughs) Like, I'm just gonna, you know, describe things being a little bit grimy for, you know, 800,000 words or whatever. (laughs) I mean, I think that's a trap a lot of people fall into. (laughs) Yeah. Especially early on. Like, everything yeah. I've made is so cool, and I want you to see it all. But nothing happens. Yeah. <laughs> it's just neat to look at. <laughs> yeah, there's there's um, a genre that I wrote in a fair amount back when I was just a baby writer. Um, and this, this coincided with the steampunk craze in the late aughts and early teens. Mm-hmm. Um, when goths where... discovered brown. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I say that as a goth. It's you know. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> I I 100% agree. I was like, oh, I can just paint this brown and it's it's cool again. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Let me do it. Yep. Put some some gears on it. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> cat. Oh, cat attack. <laughs> but this this genre that I wrote in a lot that my wife describes as let me tell you how smart I am (laughs) where like the entire story is just like there's this really cool invention I did and you know maybe something will happen with it but mostly I'm just going to tell you about how cool it is yep (laughs) look at this very neat idea (laughs) yeah it's like I I I wrote this this story that was pretty much just uh, like a steampunk cosmic horror based off of kind of based off of the Lovecraft story, The Whisperer in the Dark. Oh yeah, yeah. Which, spoiler alert: the <laughs> scary thing is that this guy has been having these conversations with an alien brain in a jar. Mm-hmm. And I was like oh, wouldn't it be cool to do a steampunk take on this? And so I had, like, you know, essentially this person was, ended up having, like, conversations with a computer. Mm, But first I had to invent the computer. Right. (laughs) In great detail. (laughs) In great detail. Like, describing (laughs) coming up with binary. Yep. And, like, doing my own take on, like, the difference engine, figuring (laughs) out how to, like how somebody would arrive at binary in the 1800s. And it was, you know, 
like probably 10, 15,000 words of this before anything actually scary happened. And then it was over <laughs> in like a thousand words or something. Yeah. And I'm done now. <laughs> yeah. And it was just like, you know, that was something that I had to write in order to learn how to not do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I have this feeling like a lot of people's trunks, you know, even you said your trunk is, is fairly small right now, but that everybody's trunk has some things in it which they had to kind of write to get it out of their system or write in order to realize why it wouldn't work. Absolutely. Yeah, I and mean, you can't learn the lesson without doing the thing, so. Yeah. So it's about the point in the show where I'm going to ask you, uh, there's this nice blue police box over here <laughs> that I'm going to ask if we can step into and maybe talk a little bit to baby writer Megan and if there's anything that you wish you had known then that you know now that you wish you could have like told yourself. Okay. So if we go with like actual baby writer Megan, which is about, I don't know, maybe 10 years old, you know, <laughs> mm-hmm. really young. I thought back then when it was like, I don't know, I want to say mid nineties and I just built my first computer and I was getting online with like a 14.4 K modem and, um, good stuff. Yep. And finding like, you know, Dungeons and Dragons role-playing chat rooms where we were typing, you know, massive forum posts. There's just like all the stuff my character did and telling stories that way. Mm -hmm. That Megan was fairly convinced that you actually, well, you couldn't be a writer because one, it didn't pay. My mom was a journalist and I was very (laughs) sure that being a writer did not pay (laughs) enough to live. And that I thought for like, that Megan thought Wizards of the Coast was just like, the best like those those novelizations those tie-ins were the best thing going i mm-hmm. thought you had to move to seattle to be a writer because you had to work for them to get into <laughs> fantasy because <laughs> uh-huh. there was there's no information online um, right so i thought you know no money gotta move to seattle maybe gotta move to new york if you want to go the other direction this is <sighs> definitely not for me and i just never pursued it i just didn't write us like an actual story aside from dungeons and dragons and world of darkness stuff until Mm -hmm. about i want to say 2013 that's when i stumbled across the writing excuses podcast and was like oh people actually do this for like a living and it's fine (laughs) Mm -hmm. so i would i would say you can do it and go ahead and start early because then you get the junk out of your system quickly (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) yeah for sure that's really interesting to to have that perspective of oh, you can't make money at this because, oh, yeah. like, No, we, we my mom made, I remember this distinctly, because she, she made $1,000 above the poverty line um, as a single mom, so no assistance uh, because of that. And we lived in a, well, a condemned house in Lay. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, in a not great neighborhood uh, with no air conditioning in the California summer. So I was Oof. like, nope, I'm going to have air conditioning in my life. I, yeah. <laughs> writing is cool, but not that cool. And yeah, yeah. <laughs> writing's cool, but air conditioning is cold. Yes, <laughs> cold beats cool. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I I grew up in a, a household where my parents were both fans, and my dad had worked in the publishing industry uh, mm-hmm. for 
I don't know how long he's worked in the publishing industry for now. Probably <laughs> since he finished grad school and realized he didn't want to be a professor. Yeah. So that would be for 50 years? <laughs> Something like, I don't know. Time's fake. Yeah, nothing, I, don't, I don't know what nothing is, is ma- Nothing matters. Nothing is real. Uh, <laughs> that's not true. Many things are real and matter. For instance, Murderbot. Yes, Murderbot is great. <laughs> but, like, I grew up around this idea of, like, oh, yeah, writing is totally a thing that, like, people do and, like, it might not be their only gig, but, like, mm-hmm. it happens. It was accessible, yeah. Yeah. I, well, yeah, my, my mom went into teaching for the money, if that gives you any idea. <laughs> <laughs> so. Yeah. I was unimpressed with the concept at the time. <laughs> yeah. For real. And it's, it is, I mean, like, you know, I can't personally speak for that noveling lifestyle, but on the short fiction front, like, yeah, you're not probably going to make money, like, make a living oh, yeah. just off of short fiction. I, I'll tell you my, my weird Jerry Pornell experience, okay? <laughs> I'm ready for it. So I met Jerry Pornell at, um, it's like a party banquet kind of thing, right? Mm-hmm. And somebody had dragged me over and it's like, oh, you know, this is Megan O'Keefe. She wrote um, this fantasy story. It was my first publication, you know? Mm-hmm. And he, he looked at me and he was eating his ice cream. So he was like talking <laughs> while eating. And he was like, nobody makes a living writing fantasy stories. <laughs> and I looked at him like, nobody makes a living writing any short stories. Like this is a, a genre <laughs> issue. <laughs> and I don't think... He liked me, but you know, (laughs) (laughs) that's okay. Jerry Pornell, you don't have to be liked by Jerry Pornell. It was fine. Yeah. I got along just great. So (laughs) yeah. yeah, Short stories are are not a career choice. No, no. Which is, you know, for me, I wish somebody had actually told me that when I had started writing and be like, yeah, try to develop the attention span to write a novel now. <laughs> that would be good advice, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was just writing short fiction for... Like, I, I was forced into writing longer fiction in college because I had assignments where it was like, write a novella. Like, oh. you have three weeks, write a novella, go. Mm-hmm. You're like, oh no. <laughs> Which, like, honestly, the fastest I've ever written anything in my whole entire life. I, yeah, like, school words, deadlines will do that to you. <laughs> words per day. Like, I turned out, I think I turned out a 30,000-word novella in, in three weeks mm-hmm. for that class. And, like, I think it took me three months the last time I, I wrote anything <laughs> that long. Well, you know you can do it and finish it, which is valuable, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> Extremely valuable. Yeah, but, like, having that lesson of, like, you know, because I thought I was going to, I didn't think I was going to go into technology and, like, make actual real people money. I thought I was going to, like, be an artist and live off of my art somehow from Mm -hmm. only writing short fiction. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I, you know, I was a child. I did not really know what life was going to be like or you know had any clue of 2008 or 2020 or anything in between that happening yeah that was yeah that changed a lot (laughs) yeah 
this is not the cyberpunk dystopia I signed up for. It super isn't. I expected a lot more neon and, you know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Way cooler outfits. Like, this is really disappointing. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, no, like, I used to go to goth, goth clubs. Like, they knew what was up with the outfits. But oh, they yeah. only wore them there. Wait, in the Bay Area? Oh, in Philadelphia. Okay. <laughs> we might have crossed paths. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, the world is so small, we probably already had connections before, before you know, our writing worlds intersected. Oh, I'm sure. Yeah. <laughs> and, like, once, you know, once, once you get into writing as, like, a thing that you do, your world just gets one million times smaller. It, yeah, it is feels like a very large industry but it is a very small pool of people yeah yeah which is you know not to say that being kind isn't its own reward but like being a kind person and a decent person is like oh, yeah really important if you want to be in writing for the long haul absolutely because word gets around yeah it does <laughs> just don't be an asshole i don't yeah. think it's that hard but you know <laughs> yeah it's you I'm know surprised every day and <laughs> <laughs> I, I have various feelings about will wheaton which i'm not going to get into but mm. he does have words of wisdom of don't be an asshole and those are you know words to live by absolutely yeah <laughs> so we're getting towards the end of the show and i wanted to give you a chance to plug chaos vector oh yes so uh, Chaos Vector is now coming out July 28th. I'm assuming that date will not change. Um, yeah, at this point, I would hope. the state of the world, I'm not sure. <laughs> the ebook, at the very least, will be out July 28th. Um, Excellent. It is the direct sequel to Velocity Weapon, uh, and as such is difficult to describe without a massive amount of spoilers for Velocity Weapon. Um, yep. But uh, I will... Can you plug Velocity Weapon, then, for the people who have not read it, and then, listeners, you can go out and... Buy both. Sure. That is a good plan that I fully endorse. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so Velocity Weapon uh, centers Santa Grieve, who is a gunship uh, sergeant, who is caught up in a war that uh, culminates in a battle where she is stranded and finds herself, uh, quote-unquote, rescued by an enemy smart ship um, that is first in its class, uh, fully generalized artificial intelligence, and he is her only life raft because the war she was fighting has been over for 230 years. Uh, the star system is dead, and now she has to get back to civilization. Cool. So, listeners, if you like books with spaceships on the cover, go and pick <laughs> up Velocity Weapon right now and uh, pre-order Chaos Vector wherever you get books, uh, preferably at an indie bookshop. You can yes. use bookshop.org bookstore.org so i know i'll look uh, it up afterwards and and make sure i put the right one in the yeah. edit uh borderlands books actually um does not use bookshop.org or whatever that is but they do have their own um online ordering system and as they are my my local store and near and dear to my heart i yes strongly suggest borderlands books in san francisco Listeners, if you are local to borderlands or even if you are not considered supporting borderlands books they are good people once this is all over, they will resume having very good events. Yep. And they deserve your dollars as the Bay Area's premier science fiction and fantasy bookstore. Absolutely. 
But, you know, if you have a local indie that you want to support, do that instead. Yep. We won't judge you. Just go out no. and pre-order books. As long as you're buying the books, I am happy. Yeah. As long as bookstores keep being a thing and oh. we don't just get swallowed by Amazon. Yeah. Diversification be... of a market is good. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, Megan... I am so glad that you were able to come on the show. Uh, really enjoyed having you. Listeners, keep a lookout for Chaos Vector wherever you buy books, releasing July 28th, and go get Velocity Weapon now so that you're caught up by the time it comes out. That is a good plan. <laughs> Thank you yeah. for having me. <laughs> it's a Absolutely. Lot of fun. It's been a lot of fun. Uh, Megan, before you go, are there places where listeners can find you online elsewhere? Oh, yeah. Uh, MeganO'Keefe.com. It's pretty easy. Um, if you happen to type in MeganEO'Keefe.com, it will redirect, so don't be afraid. Excellent. Uh, and I am also on Twitter at MeganEO'Keefe. Fantastic. So if you want good, good Twitter content, go and give <laughs> Megan a follow. And it's mostly shitposts and cat pictures. Like, I don't... <laughs> As I said, if you want good, good content. Okay, yeah, that works. <laughs> I mean, listeners, if you follow me, you already get tons of shit posting and cat pictures. So, like, more of the same, always good. Awesome. <laughs> listeners, please join us again in two weeks on July 3rd for our next Shelter in Place special. And join us again two weeks after that on July the 17th when our guest will be Merck Fenn Wolfmore. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com trunkcast. All patrons of the show now get a logo button, along with show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. You can find the show on Twitter at trunkcast, and I tweet at hbbisniex. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject.